Hi there. Welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where, as you probably know by now, we are just trying to make the world 10% nicer. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and this week's guest is Dr. Shepard Siegel. He's the author of Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. This is a great book. I read it a few weeks ago, and the pages are just littered with my favorite, my favorite, favorite cultural heroes. People like Andy Kaufman, um, Lenny Bruce, Banksy, the Yes Men, and, and so many others, all presented in the context of educating about play. Play, which is something it turns out that too few of us, especially adults, really do. And the idea that play could bring about a super nicer society is something that has just been rattling around in the back of my head for many years now. And it's Shepard's book, it's Dr. Siegel's book, though, that really clarified, articulated, and expanded this hunch of mine. I mean, it turns out I'm not alone. Lots of people have been focused on the power of play pretty much ever since humans first started telling stories. And... To be clear, to be clear, we're not talking about video games, okay? Or sports or the bane of my existence, play dates. Ugh, don't get me started on play dates. We're talking about wide open, no rules, play. You know, playing. It gets so much harder as an adult. Other adults don't even play anymore. They don't like I try to get adults to play hide and seek or tag, and they're like, I'm not gonna run around, I'm gonna act like a kid. It's so sad. It's so sad. If you're too old to play hide-and-seek, I don't know. Anyway, so uh, you listen to this podcast, you'll learn about the role of Trickster, the Trickster, throughout history. Contemporary Tricksters like Bugs Bunny and Loki from the Marvel movies. Well, I mean, Loki's from North, Norse mythology, which is also North myth- mythology. Wow, Norse mythology. North Norse mythology. Ha, <laughs> did it. Um, but did you know that it's Tricksters, not politicians, who just might save humanity from itself. Hmm? Listen to this podcast and you'll learn why. I hope to convince you of that statement. Anyway, before Dr. Siegel got into studying mythology and psychology and all these smart ologies, he was a professional rock and jazz musician. So we'll get into music quite a bit in this discussion as well, because that's where there's always been a whole lot of play going on. Once he got into academia, He focused on at-risk youth, which is super nice, creating innovative internship programs to help them out and give them second and third chances when few others would. He's published a ton of books and papers and won a bunch of awards for his work helping those who society tends to overlook, which sadly, in my opinion, uh, probably yours, is disadvantaged high school kids. He's a burner, a deadhead, an educator, a musician, a historian, and above all, a trickster at heart. Again, his latest book is Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture, and it totally deserves a place on your bookshelf. And if you don't have a bookshelf, go get a bookshelf. This can be the first book on your bookshelf. Okay, on to some Super Nice Club stuff. Speaking of play and Super Nice Club, we're looking for people who want to play with us on TikTok, that uh, infernal social media platform. I'm not. I'm never going to post on TikTok. But if you want to represent the Super Nice Club on that platform, we're putting together sort of a Super Nice Superhero team to represent on our account. Ideally, I mean, let's be honest, younger folks. So maybe your kids would be interested. Maybe trade for some swag. Just let me know. We'll figure it out. Also, 
All Super Nice Club gear is 20% off until December 12th. That's four days from when this podcast lands. Uh, we won't do another site-wide sale until next holiday. We don't really do sales. So now's the time to grab your gear. We'll ship it out the same day. And there really isn't a nicer holiday gift. I'm going to say that Super Nice Gear is better than a PlayStation, for sure. So 20% off, use the code NICER2021. Use the hopeful code NICER2021. If you don't know about the Super Nice Club, that's weird. You're listening to this, you don't know about the club. But maybe there's somebody out there that doesn't. And you can learn more about us at Super Nice Club Instagram or Facebook, you know, at Super Nice Club. Find us online, superniceclub.com. You can get details about our mission to make the world 10% nicer. That's just a starting point. Also at the site, like I said, there's merch, shirts, hat stickers. There'll be guitar picks soon because Dr. Siegel played music and we need to get him some guitar pick. Uh, Some guitar pick. Picks? Plural? Yeah. And more to help you spread the word in your community around the simple idea of making the world a nicer place. Here's the cool part. If your nice merchandise doesn't help you start nice conversations, my tongue is really in the way today. Just, can't you tell? I'm not going to edit this out, so you have to suffer through it. Uh, you get your money back, no problem. You can also text nice trickster right now to 310-421-0393 to join our super nice club insider community, where you'll get invited to events, giveaways, local gatherings, dinner at Dr. Siegel's house um, two nights a week, and just a lot more. And uh, if you like this podcast or even this rambling, thick-tongued intro, will you pretty please subscribe and pass it along to friends? Post it up on your socials. Uh, Podcasting is such a crowded space, and we really want to stand out to get this message out and to get the, the... voice of our guests out because they're all committed to making the world a nicer place and to doing that through combining uh, turning their passions into careers that inspire others all right so we can't get the word out we can't stand out without your help need it need your support need your help talk about the podcast please all right i'm done you ready for this okay turn off everything else click 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 tune out the rest of the world maybe 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 put some headphones on if you're not driving and drop in to nice work with Shepard Siegel. Dr. Shepard Siegel. Dr. Shepard Siegel. Good afternoon, Dr. Siegel. Shepard Siegel, how are you? Where are you? Good afternoon to you, Todd. I'm hanging out here in Seattle, Washington. Been here for a few decades. It's I love wet. Seattle. It's, yeah, I love it too. And it, it's gray. You know, you don't have to worry about sunburn. You know, when I was younger, I always thought. Someday I'm going to move to Vashon Island and I'm going to have a little boat and I'm going to hang out with all these sort of Waldorf hippies out there, but have an apartment as well in Seattle. Like that was the dream. But now Vashon's changed a lot, but Vashon was for a long time my future dream. You've been there. I have. Yeah. Then you remember Umo, the Umo Theater. I was on the board of Umo, which is this kind of absurdist theater group that comes out of Vashon. But since you mentioned it, you know, our main arterial to the city, the West Seattle Bridge, is is down. And it'll oh. have been down for ever since COVID started because there's cracks in it. So we're very isolated. So I live in West Seattle. And, okay. And so West Seattle has been renamed East Vashon because we can't, <laughs> we can't get downtown. <laughs> oh, you're cut off. I didn't know that. Yeah. It'll be another two years, 18 months at least. 
So it has to be a huge overhaul engineering project. Right. All right. Well, what about boats? Yeah, there's a water taxi, and I'm encouraging our county government to increase the number of runs on it. Yeah. But once well, Seattle's got everything you need, so, look, you know, I'm good. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. The whole, all of Washington, especially the Western coast. I love it. But anyway, enough about that. Let's, let's jump in. Let's play here. So first of all, I think it would be really helpful if you just please the best you can define play. Because I think most people assume we mean games and competition, but what's the play you're talking about? Right. Yeah. And the, the book is called Disruptive Play. So in my research, you know, I actually hang out with play scholars. There are professors out there who study play. And there's, of course, an organization. And so looking through the academic literature, there's, uh, these, these guys came up with 308 different kinds of play. But um, yeah, I only concern myself with three. So the first one is um, called original play. So original play is what all animals do, except adult humans, but babies do it and all animals do it. And it's, for lack of a better term, it's frolic. It's um, you're, you're rolling around on the ground, you're wrestling, you're not hitting, you're not biting, you're not clutching, it's not sexual, but you, it's physical and you're having fun and you're just being playful. So that's this kind of state of grace called original play. And believe it or not, even as a grown-up, you can reconnect with it. You don't ever really lose the ability to do it. We just stop doing it. And in fact, one of the reasons we stop doing it is because of that second kind of play, cultural play. When original play mutates and morphs into competition, and it turns into a game with winners and losers, with keeping score. And there's nothing wrong with cultural play. Cultural play is, is fine stuff. That's how you get achievement. Um, that's how you get sports. And you get, and that's, that's the good part of competition is when cultural play is working well. Of course, my caveat is when cultural play gets out of hand and competition reaches toxic levels, you get that really bad three-letter word, war. And, uh, and, and short of war, you can still have toxic competition. You can have commerce that just gets to the extent where it invades in your life. And so we become, especially in this country, so consumed with cultural play that we forget how to do original play. So simple algebra. Disruptive play is simply when you take original play and you inject it into the arena of cultural play. So the most banal example would be an NFL football game, cultural play, very serious. The athletes are earning a lot of money. Back in the day when we had people at the game, they paid a lot of money to watch the game. And some guy runs out naked across the field in the middle of a play, you know, and this was called streaking. I think it happened in the late 70s, early 80s. So whoever that was, that was a disruptive player. That was taking something silly and originally playful and disrupting the cultural play. And it really angers people who are committed to the cultural game. The other example I like to use at the other end of the spectrum, something that is not banal at all, was uh, during the Vietnam War when um, um, Abby Hoffman and the Yippies, along with other organizers, were putting together a demonstration, and they wanted to uh, 
encircle the Pentagon uh, in protest. So the Pentagon, when you think about it, is the international center of cultural play taken to the level of war. It's the biggest war-making institution in history. So uh, Hoffman actually got a meeting with the generals. And he's sitting there in the room with the generals, and, and they're saying, well, you have the constitutional right to protest, so let's see about giving you this permit. He says, well, we're going to have about 20,000, 30,000 people, maybe more. They go, okay. He says, and we're going to encircle the Pentagon. They got out their pencils and paper, and they say, okay, okay. He says, and then we're going to do an exorcism right, and we're going to levitate the Pentagon 300 feet off the ground. <laughs> at, at which point, uh, and folks, this story is getting retold a lot, which is really great. Um, and, and at which point they put their pencils down and said, what, you know, that's absurd. And he goes, yeah, sure is. So is the war in Vietnam. And uh, um, yeah, and, and so they start to cancel the meeting and he goes, wait, 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 wait. I'm a reasonable man. How about 30 feet? Could you see your way to giving me a permit to levitating at 30 feet off the ground? And that's the kind of theater and disruptive play, injecting something that's very silly into something that likes to think of itself as, as being very, very serious. Okay. There, there, there's a lot there. So first of all, we'll get back to Abby Hoffman, uh, levitating the Pentagon. I had to Google that. This is something that I wasn't aware of. Can I'm I add surprised one, that I hadn't heard of it. Let me add one footnote to that. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting, uh, sidelight of that event is that the media, of course, Hoffman was using the media, which everybody, a lot of people do now, right? And he was telling the networks and the New York Times and everybody that they were going to do this. And the media refused to cover it because they felt manipulated. So when you Googled it, it's you, you'll just find some people telling the story. So the bottom line is, we don't really know whether the Pentagon might have actually lifted off the ground that day or not. <laughs> I did hear you. So if I heard you correctly, then of the 308 types of play, there are some scholars who would say that war is a type of cultural play. Is that right? Sure. That's really interesting, uh, especially with all of the, the ritual warfare that happens in, in some tribes around the world. Right. The, the, one of the godfathers of play theory is the Dutch um, philosopher, and I never pronounce his name right, but Johan Husinka, who wrote Homo Ludens, Man the Player. And uh, what's interesting is here he was in Holland, in the Netherlands, and the book came out in the late 1930s. So he is watching Hitler rise to power, and he is seeing war on the horizon, and this stimulates a lot of his thinking. And so he talks about games a lot, and, <laughs> okay. and he is saying that that highest level of game. And, and you know, I talk about archetypes. You know, my my work is about the the trickster archetype. But what we see in the United States is that the warrior archetype is alive and well. I mean, so many Americans really know how to embody that warrior style. We um, we still get folks who can do trickster, who can do child, who do, can do mother, all, all of them, but people who really follow and believe in that ethos of the warrior, uh, there's no shortage of it in our country. No, and it's what is often uh, idealized in business, in sport. I mean, anytime you, you listen to a football game, they often use terms of, of, of conflict and of war. Right. You know, these are soldiers, we're on the battle, all that kind of stuff. 
Okay, so we've kind of got play to find, and we're, we're talking about a little bit the other primary element that you outlined in your book. Again, the book is Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. And so this trickster archetype, talk about the trickster. This is a character that we see everywhere in popular culture, but most people probably don't recognize and identify it as such. I think that the most famous one that's out there right now, and correct me, but just in terms of eyeballs, Mm -hmm. is probably Loki in the Marvel uh, Thor. Yes, agreed. And um, the reading all about it, like the oldest trickster character we know of is Wachankaga, who was um, uh, through the folktales of the Winnebago tribe that was in the Midwestern United States. And I've identified nine, nine attributes of the trickster. And so the first thing to know about them is that when you talk about an archetype, a human being cannot be an archetype. So they can be trickster-like, trickster-esque. Um, I really like to compare it to Star Wars. So Star Wars is all about the hero-warrior archetype. And if somebody has a lot of that energy in them, we say the force is strong with him. So I like to think about trickster the same way. You can't be a trickster, but the force can be strong with you. And I watch the Marvel uh, movies with great interest because when they first intru- and, and and here's the uh, one of the other attributes. I won't go through all nine right now, but what is that? Is that tricksters are morally indeterminate? Okay, or you could even say amoral. And that's the whole point of the trickster cycle, is it's a cycle of discovering morality. But when they start out, they just want to have fun. So most of us, before we commit to an action, we ask ourselves, well, am I doing a good thing or a bad thing? And we all try to do good things. The trickster just says, is this going to be fun? And if it's fun, they're going to do it. And it might be mean. It might be nice. It might be good might be evil but it but but the beauty of the trickster cycle is that as the cycle completes itself the trickster discovers morality and that's really one of my main points so the marvel movies show up and i'm watching loki with great interest because if you read the norse mythology loki is a true trickster demigod um and i'm i'm complaining of course i'm critical that they've just painted him as a villain you know, they, they haven't made him morally indeterminate. They've just made him the bad guy. But what I've noticed is with each time there's another movie where he shows up, Marvel seems to be inching closer and closer to a more authentic, right? Because he does some good stuff once in a while, too, doesn't he? he re- yeah, but then it's always at the end you realize that it, it, he's doing it for with an evil perspective. I, I, I agree, you know. So you talked about Loki in your book, sort of two versions. And I don't remember correctly, but was one sort of a pre-Christian version? Yeah. Yes. And then, okay. Yeah. And, and, so what were the differences in that? Right. So the original version of Loki was a true trickster. He was. He did not have to be cast as as evil, but he was he was going through the trickster cycle, and he was more just about mischief. More just about, is it fun? Well, when Christianity comes along, see, that's very threatening. And this leads to a couple of other, other thoughts. And so the Christian doctrine, if you will, 
um, has to make a decide on a character whether they're good or evil, and so he become, becomes becomes a bad guy. And you know, there's a reason for this. And if we can jump from Christianity coming to Norse to the Crusades, which were Christians against Muslims, um, if if I want to build an empire, which is what the Western Europeans wanted to do. I have to convince my army that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys and therefore it's okay to kill them. So you have to have a moral dictum. And the, the trickster demigod is a very powerful influence in most cultures. Well, I can't, you know, and so if you had a bunch of tricksters in your army and you go, those are the bad guys and we're the good guys and they go, mm, you sure about that? Because I'm not so sure about that. You can't have a powerful, morally indeterminate uh, character or spirit running around. So, the, so you had to turn the trickster into the bad guy um, so that your army would kill the guys in the other army. Um, and this continues to another favorite story of mine, which is the legend around Robert Johnson, right? The greatest blues player ever. And so many of us know the story of Crossroads and the way they like to tell the story, even to this day, is that he was a reasonably okay, but not so good blues player. And then he disappeared for a while. And according to legend, went down to the crossroads on Highway 61 and made it and made a deal with the devil because us Westerners love the devil. And so the and, 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 and he comes back and he's the greatest blues player ever. I don't buy that legend. I buy an alternate legend that he made a deal, or he didn't make a deal. He received blessings from Eshu. Mm. And Eshu is the West African trickster god. But Eshu as a trickster is morally indeterminate. So the, that story doesn't have as much appeal to the Western mind. So he didn't sell his soul to the devil. He went and received blessings. And Eshu gave him the blessings that allowed him to become so great. But this is what happens to tricksters in, in Europe, is they become equated with the devil. Um, and uh, that's just one example. And I will just say there was, you know, there was a recent documentary on some streaming channel about Robert Johnson, and I thought I'd check it out. And they're still, they're still plugging that, that version. Plugging that old tune. Yeah. So – as you were talking about that, I'm just going to bounce off topic Please. for a second, just because I know, and we'll get into your your uh, personal passions and history as a musician. This kind of ble bleeds into that a little bit. Have you read Coming Through Slaughter by Michael Ondaatje? I have not. Put it on your list. It's a fictionalized version of the life of a New Orleans jazzman, Buddy Bolden. Oh! Who's, who's uh, another sort of legendary musician. We have no recordings of Buddy Bolden's, but he was as influential on what today's jazz is as Robert Johnson was on today's blues. blues. So Coming it is a book you'll love. Coming Through Slaughter. Slaughter. Okay. Yeah. And I'm speaking to the rest of you all as well, Super Nice Club members, listeners. It is one heck of a book. I probably butchered pronouncing his name, Michael Ondat J. It's got two A's, a T, a J, and an E. Starts with an O. Anyway. So, okay, tricksters. We also have, God, there's so many. We don't have the time, but you go through 
sort of a historical, you list all of these tricksters and you go through them and how they're exemplified in, in people today. Uh, in fact, I ordered a big book on the Dada provocateur, Alfred Jerry, right, right. because I was so fascinated. I'm like, I never really paid attention to this guy before. And now I've have a lot to pay attention to. There's the Beats, Abby Hoffman, we talked about earlier. Um, my my heroes, serious heroes, Lenny Bruce and Andy Kaufman. Right. Uh, you go up through the Yes Men, yes. Banksy. Did you mention uh, Callie Lazen of Adbusters? I don't remember. No, but I've met um, with okay. him. And okay. he's been very, very, you know, he did Occupy. What a neat guy. And because uh, we're so near Vancouver, BC, right? And he was so friendly. They put the book on their website when it came out and yeah. Yeah, he's I've had a little bit of contact with him as well. Super supportive and and a little a little underappreciated. So, let's talk about a few of these people, uh, you know, some of your favorites. Just throw some more examples out. There's even Bugs Bunny. I forgot Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the most direct route, you know, because sometimes it, it, it it's a little bit complicated. Uh, tricksters by their nature are paradoxical. So when I'm speaking to folks, I, I say, well, the great American trickster is Bugs Bunny. And he, he uh, you know, and keep in mind, Bugs Bunny can do what a human being can't. A human being cannot be an archetype, but a cartoon character can. A cartoon character can. And uh, the way, he, uh, you know, show me a Bugs Bunny cartoon where uh, he doesn't cross-dress usually to seduce Elmer Fudd and kiss him and run away. Cause, and he only is motivated by having fun. He really is not someone you look to for moral guidance, but you certainly look to him for having a lot of fun. So um, it just came to me at one point that, that Bugs Bunny just com- completely, oh, I know how it came to me was, well, well so I talked about Wachunkaga of the Winnebago's, and the, the classic work on that is um, – called The Trickster, and it's by a gentleman named Paul Radin. Uh, Carl Jung wrote the foreword to the book, and the book came out in the early 1950s. And and, and so there are these little tales, these little stories of watching Kaga. Uh, and by the way, you know, Anansi the spider is a spider in, in, in West Africa, but some trickster characters, they don't tell you what they look like. You can only assume that they're humanoid, you know, but some of them, you know, like coyote is, is, is a trickster animal and raven is a trickster animal, but uh, Wachunkaga is indeterminate. Um, and I'm reading these Wachunkaga folktales and I'm going, wow, these last about seven minutes, you know, <laughs> and, and they have the same characteristics and it just dawned on me and went, oh, it's Bugs Bunny. Bug, and, and so I started doing research on Bugs Bunny. And so Bugs Bunny cartoons came out in the 40s. Paul Radin didn't publish his book until the early 1950s. Because I'm going, mm. boy, those guys that did the Bugs Bunny cartoons must have been reading anthropology works. <laughs> but I think they were just channeling it in a, you know, um, a different way. And it's interesting that Bugs Bunny cartoons were a collective effort. Um, there was, you know, a table of writers and artists, um, and of course, Carl Stalling doing amazing music scores, but the point being, they had a collective sense. So if somebody would bring an idea for a Bugs Bunny cartoon, and the committee, you know, the group would say, yeah, yeah, that fits or that doesn't. So somehow, in some abstract way, they had a very strong grasp of, of, of who Bugs Bunny was. And yes, I love him to this day. 
And all these different writers for Bugs, uh, one of them stood out, right? Well, there was a guy whose middle name was Bugs, and he came up with the original idea. So at the Warner Brothers studios, they were talking about Bugs's Bugs apostrophe S idea, uh, Bugs's bunny, and it just stuck. They just got rid of the apostrophe S, and, and that's how we got the name Bugs. He also started out as kind of a hayseed hillbilly kind of guy. Uh, but by the very early, by the third or fourth cartoon, they moved him from the country to Brooklyn and gave him a more of a Brooklyn accent. When you're talking about how these writers just sort of pulled Bugs Bunny from the collective, I'm, I'm just going to wild guess here that the trickster is one of the very few cultural universals. Exactly. Uh, virtually every culture on the planet has one. So up here where you were asking some of my favorites, where I live in Seattle, the Northwest, the indigenous folks here, it's Raven. Uh, the Raven is the trickster god. And Raven is really interesting because there are Raven tales that go all the way to far Northern California, the indigenous folks there, up through Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, all the way across the Aleutian Islands to Siberia, you will see uh, Raven tales. Uh, so that is a mythology that has spread far and wide. And even though you may pick a raven tail from um, Western Alaska and one from the Oregon area that are from very different tribes, you'll still find similarities in the tales. Um, a favorite being the one where the raven plays tricks on a chief uh, in order to get the chief to let the sun, the moon, and the stars out of a bag where he's been keeping them. And so, you know, I was thinking about that. This is the super nice club, you know, but tricksters can be a little mean sometimes. So he's doing this very mean trick to the chief. He's tricking the chief into giving him the sun, the moon, and the stars. But the greater purpose is he's giving those things to the world, um, which is very nice. <laughs> I like this. Yeah, I, 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 all tricksters. I, all tricksters are welcome in the super. <laughs> okay, <laughs> definitely welcome. You know, nice. Nice doesn't mean uh, turning the other cheek and and always being you know that sort of uh, that southern hospitality niceness, which might not really be nice on the inside. You know, uh, nice is uh, up no, to you I, to define. I love for yourself. What you're about. And I, I, I can't definitely think that uh, all the all the people we mentioned, Abby, Lenny, Andy, Banksy, they're all welcome. Now that I'm now that I'm thinking of that list, I don't have any women on that list. Who, who do we have in contemporary society that's a female? So this is a great question, and the I had not intended to write a, a, a second book, which it's not a sequel; it's more of a companion. Uh, so both books will stand alone, and the. And when I went out and toured and I went to bookstores and I did readings, I got feedback on, from the audience on two different things. One, why, isn't, why aren't there more women in the book? And the other was, where are, why, aren't, why are the people that you talk about, why aren't there more uh, people of color there? So that's something the next book is, is, is going to address. Now, um, one of the seminal works on Trickster is by Lewis Hyde. And it's called Trickster Makes This World. And he, in his appendix, he does uh, an essay about where are the female tricksters. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that, you know, they don't use the term that much anymore, but the trickster was kind of, 
kind of related to like what was called the the, the playboy type of guy who um, he's a mm-hmm. womanizer, but just as importantly, he's he's not raising a family. He doesn't have roots. So, and in a patriarchal society, he's more free to go around and play tricks that women couldn't get away with doing. So it seemed to fit what has historically been a more male personality. Another reason is that there may very well be more female tricksters in folklore and mythology, but because it wasn't until the first half of the 20th century, like deep into the 20s, 30s, maybe even the 40s, there were no female anthropologists. So if you went and you visited... It, it was less likely that the women would take you into your confidence as an anthropologist and share with you what might have been. Now, that said, in Mexican folklore, there's a female one. In um, uh, Japan, and uh, there's the Huli Jing, which is the nine-tailed fox. And the nine-tailed fox is a trickster. Now, um, you're an animation fan, I'm going to guess. And uh, um, there's this... David Fincher produced series on Netflix, Sex, Something, and Robots. Oh, right. And yep. there's, there's a brilliant, brilliant, uh, you know, each is a standalone episode. And there's a brilliant one of, where that takes the Huli Jing mythology from Japan, or, or China, actually, and turns it into a story called uh, Good Hunting. Um, that takes place in Hong Kong as Hong Kong is industrializing and it's an, in a, it's in, going to be in the new book. Um, it's an amazing story of a female trickster. I've seen it. It's Love, Death and Robots and I've seen that episode. Yeah, Love, Death and Robots. There are some some really great episodes in there. I didn't realize that was David Fincher. I think he... Huh. I think, that guy does so yeah, much good does. stuff. So I'm doing research on Yoko Ono right now. And Yoko Ono is really, really complicated. You may have heard of her husband. And um... yeah, John Belushi, right? <laughs> no, it's Vladimir Lenin. Um... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and um... and you, yeah, I'm not going to call her a trickster character, but if you really look at Yoko Ono's art and you set aside not just the marriage to John Lennon, but all the brouhaha that surrounded them, you'll see a trickster element in a lot of her artwork. She's certainly a provocateur, which isn't always a trickster. Well said, right. Yeah. All tricksters are provocateurs, but not all provocateurs are tricksters. Exactly, yes. Can we say that? And all tricksters are playful, but there's a lot of playful folks who aren't necessarily tricksters. Um, One of my favorites, because they, they dive into politics and, and, and nudge, I, I, they try to nudge policy are the yes men. And you get into the yes men in your book, and there's a couple of examples. Can you relate your favorites to those who aren't familiar with the yes men, your favorite yes men, yeah. Frank? And, and, you know, and I know you're familiar with them too, Todd. And so you probably can tell that they've studied Abby Hoffman's playbook as well. And so the yes men are these two guys, they're at, one, at least one of them is a professor, uh, out of Montreal, and they go by a few different names, and they they uh, tell lies to expose the truth. For a, a long time, anyway, their strategy was if they um, because they did have a moral sense about them, but they also were pranksters, great pranksters. So if they found a corporation 
or a government that was doing something that they felt was wrong and needed to be exposed, they would put up a fake website and pose as vice presidents of that corporation and then wait to get invited to a conference. So this, this dates back to the tragedy in Bhopal, India, where Union Carbide, before it was bought by Dow Chemical, um, had a, uh, I believe, a pesticide factory that exploded. Um, several thousand people were killed initially. Eventually, 19,000 people died from the effects of that explosion, and there were extensive birth defects happening. They, um, Dow Chemical bought Union Carbide, made a settlement with the Indian government that got very little money and very little reparation to that, uh, the families and the victims of that tragedy. So they put up a fake Dow Chemical website, and sure enough, they got invited to a keynote, pretending, posing as a vice president of Dow Chemical, a keynote to a conference of bankers in London. So it was a big deal. And what they did is they, they got on BBC, so hundreds of millions of people heard them say that um, Dow Chemical feels terrible about the tragedy in Bhopal, and they're going to make reparations to all the victims, and they're going to give them enough money and whatever else they need to do whatever they can to make things right, short of they can't bring dead people back. And uh, this was a lie, but the attention that they got from it, all of a sudden, they were the most Googled uh, thing for a short while, and they, they made a big, uh, a big splash, and all of a sudden, the world was informed on what this corporation had done in India. Uh, it's a brilliant case study of using tricksterism and pranks and playfulness to actually get very seriously into, into the politics of a situation. And boy, the media, the media sure didn't take kindly to them in a lot of instances, no. did they? But it gave them an opportunity to they go, they go, you gave the people of Bhopal hope when there really wasn't any hope. They go, yeah, we gave them hope for a couple of weeks whereas they've been suffering for, it was the 20th anniversary of the tragedy. And they said, well, maybe the media's right. So they went and visited Bhopal to see if everyone was angry at them for giving them false hope. And quite the reverse. The people of Bhopal were very grateful and thanked them. They also showed up after Katrina. And I really think that was their last big splash, was they exposed that Katrina was excuse for a lot of corporations to go in and try to make money as things were being rebuilt and not really delivering on what the people of New Orleans were asking for in terms of housing, jobs, education. Is that when they introduced their survival ball? Was it Katrina? Was it related I, to that? I, I'm not sure. I, Todd, Todd, I get to so ask you guys, a this question is, once in a while. Will you tell yeah, your listeners about okay. the survival ball? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I was just trying to think about So the survival ball is indescribable. First of all, just Google survival ball, <laughs> all one word. If you want to see something ridiculous, it's this suit that you wear and it's you're inside this big ball that allows you to survive any conditions. So you can survive a 100-foot fall in case there's a fire in your building, right? You get into the survival ball and jump out. You can float in the water. You can, uh, by manipulating the ball, sort of ambulate throughout town. If you connect the balls to one another, you can 
communicate and, and create a large it, – it's absurd. But they're real. The thing is they built these Survival Balls. And I was lucky enough to get into one in Copenhagen some years back at the uh, U- UN Climate Conference. And I, I can't. I could have done a better description there. But just go check out Survival Ball. And ch- better yet, check out the presentation they give on the Survival Ball in front of – it's either it's either uh, disaster coordinators or yeah, oil executives. Go ahead. Um, oh, oh, yeah. But speaking of uh, uh, one of their key collaborators is a, a good friend of mine, and he was actually uh, episode sixteen guest here on Nice Work. Steve Lambert. Uh, he's a legendary trickster, founder of the Center for Artistic Activism. I just have to give him a quick shout out here. We go way back from a, a two thousand and one anti war hillside sign in the East Bay. Uh, we printed 30,000 fake newspapers that highlight our environmental predicament for the Post Carbon Institute. As a matter of fact, Steve is the guy who was the, the architect of their newspaper, right. the New York Times. Which was a yes men prank. The fake New York uh, Times piece. During which was a yes men prank, which was incredible. Yeah, during, um, mm-hmm. um, claiming that the Iraq War had been ended and we were going to take care of a lot of things. But the survival ball is kind of like a, a mobile bomb shelter. And the idea is they're selling it to yeah. rich people saying, look, there's going to be a terrible catastrophe and all the poor people are going to die or you know eat it. But you can be safe in your survival mm-hmm. ball. And they'll go to these conferences and there's genuine interest for it. Well, in no, a related sorry, one, they, they're at a conference and they're doing this this death calculator, you know, and this is in the aftermath of Bhopal. So if your corporation has a, a catastrophe, um, you, you, you enter what country it happened in and you enter how bad your catastrophe is and it'll tell you how, how many people will die and what it's going to cost your company. So they actually put a price on people's lives and say, well, an American life is going to cost you a lot more than a life of somebody from India. And I mean, it's humorous in a sense, but it's not at all, especially, but you see people are buying it. So I I learned about them so much, Todd, from these movies that they put out and they put out three movies. And the second one was called the, the Yes Men Fix the World. I think that's really the one to watch. The third one is interesting because disruptive play is fun, but if you are in a world of conflict and cultural play, it's going to wear on you. I mean, Abby Hoffman ended up committing suicide. And the the Yes Men, Mm -hmm. in the third movie, you see it's really, really wearing them down. And that's why I got so interested in Burning Man. Ah, uh, we are going to get to Burning Man, but don't make that leap quite yet. That's going to be our, it's going to be kind of our highlight and our, what could the great future of play okay. society look like? All right. So hang on. Even if you're a burner hater, and there are plenty of them out there, and I get a lot of your objections. I really do because I was one once too, but hang out, wait for the Burning Man segment of this. Uh, to finish off on the Yes Men, what's interesting to me when you when you reminded me that the survival ball was sold as this escape pod escaping the the zombie apocalypse sort of the apocalypse for for wealthy people is they were pretty prescient about that right now the wealthiest of the wealthy there is a big run on underground bunkers whether the ones that are already built that were um Nuclear bunkers that have been readapted, different military bunkers that have been readapted in Montana, elsewhere, or personal bunkers. Right. Right. That is a real thing right now. And an expert, they were, they were invited to a, a conference of uh-huh. billionaires to speak in front of these billionaires because they wanted to 
They wanted to know, they, they asked this person a question, which was, hey, we have all of these bunkers and compounds and private bug out places. You know, a lot of them are in Hawaii and New Zealand. These are popular places for the uber wealthy. But we're concerned that our private contractors who built them and our private security forces who protect us, uh, you know, can wrest them from us. Right. What should we do? What should we do? And gosh, I wish I remember the name of this person. Anyway, the answer was, you better start treating them like family now. <laughs> and I just thought that was so great because as prepared as you are, as ivory tower as you'd like to be, you know, whatever you want to build around yourself, the people that you rely on to construct it and protect it are really in charge. So this aura of money as giving you invincibility is... It's completely illusory. Agree. And I think living uh, through COVID as we are and seeing the economic impact, I think everybody's got a heightened awareness of the interdependency of our economic systems and that there are these millions of people who probably don't have pensions. Maybe they've got a health insurance plan, but they're, they're, and they're working hard and they're earning money, but they're more or less paycheck to paycheck. And that has been disrupted by a, by a virus. Very, yeah. very much. And building your own resilient compound, it just won't get you anywhere. Building a resilient community where you look out for one another, that's the way we have to go. That's, you know, that's part of the, the bigger picture of being super nice. I don't know how we got onto walling ourselves off and it sounded kind of like an eat the rich type of moment. That's not what <laughs> I meant. It's a mobile bomb shelter. <laughs> right. Thanks for pulling it back. It's, Thanks for pulling it back to that. Made of made of plastic and rubber. <laughs> I mean, don't they go out into the ocean and they float in the water and or something? Yeah. They do. It's fantastic. I was inside <laughs> it, and it's just yeah. I was like an Oompa Loompa, you know. <laughs> and I was like, God, I wish somebody had a picture. I, I think I have a photo somewhere. So, what got you into this? What got you into writing about play and trickster? Yeah. What's your story? So. um I did grow up in the Bay Area. I was old enough to be a teenager uh, during the Vietnam War era. And one thing that um, I thought distinguished the anti-war movement, and it's, it's almost hard to talk about with the way we talk about things now, because it was a horrible war. There was all kinds of terrible suffering. The war was unjust. We were dropping napalm. American soldiers were getting killed. Many, many Vietnamese people were being killed. And it deserved to be protested against, but there was a there was also a, a a a playfulness and a sense of humor and satire and puppets and guerrilla theater that was going on and and and, and yippies, you know, and Abby Hoffman and to my teenage sensibilities, it just it really really struck a chord, and I, I, I like talking about it not because I'm I'm an old baby boomer, but because I think. We're in the midst right now of one of the greatest civil rights movements ever, the, the, the Black Lives Matter and, and, and the, the involvement and the articulation and the things that are coming to the fore. But it's so serious. It's so serious. And mm -hmm. um, I want to see that playful element re-enter 
the protest movement and enliven it, because that's what we're all hoping for. Whether we're talking about gender justice or racial justice, the idea is to get to a society where we're happy, we're nice, we're having fun. So you got to put that out there now. But um, so, but anyway, so to answer your question, I got involved in those things. Um, you know, I, I, I went to Palo Alto High School. And, uh, you know, there's high school rivalries, and it's usually around sports. And the other big high school, there were three, but the other big high school was Cumberly High School. And so here we are in the middle of the anti-war movement, high school students. And, and so political cliques, if you will, because that's what we do in high school. We join cliques, you know. But there was a movement now. The clique had evolved into something of a movement. And so the folks at Cumberly High School adopted a Marxist-Leninist approach to, um, to their protest and their, their leftism. And they hooked up with a, a well-known professor at Stanford, and they had a central committee, and they had discipline, and they had doctrine. Uh, we chose the more anarchistic path, of, and that's where I was introduced to Dada and absurdity, and we got into pulling pranks. Um, we commandeered the school's PA system and played Jimi Hendrix throughout the school. Um, I did take a shot at the principal with a water balloon at one point. Um, we did, we did, we did all, we did all kinds of things because tricksters mock power and tricksters are having fun making power look as silly as possible. It was just very attractive to my prankish teenage uh, teenage years, and I, and I just I just kind of had it had it in me. Now we did guerrilla theater. You know, I am um, I, I'm just kind of your standard heterosexual type. But at at one point we did guerrilla theater, and as a hippie, I had really long hair, and uh, I played Trisha Nixon in a guerrilla theater performance that we did, which is an experience I'll never forget. And so we would. This was when I went to Santa Cruz, and I was in college there. And we would go invade the cafeterias and we'd put these guerrilla theater skits on to encourage people to come to the demonstrations. And uh, there was always humor in those. We'd take old 50s rock and roll songs and write new lyrics. Um, it was a gas. What can I say? It was a gas. It was, it was a time and you were in the right city at the right time. Um, nobody in the Super Nice Club knows this about me. I guess I'll just throw it out there since you reminded me of my high school years. I went to three different high schools, and I, I really remember, you know, the, the authority, especially in high school, it is so easily threatened, you know, by these young minds coming up. We did, a, uh, we did an underground magazine, right, an underground zine that we stuffed into the lockers, and it created a literal riot on campus. Uh, uh, they were going to expel us. The ACLU had to come in and and uh, keep us from being expelled. There was a write-up in, in, speaking of the Bay Area, do you remember that magazine, Maximum sure. Rock and Roll? I don't know. It was like a That's... punk rock magazine back in the day. They wrote us up, you know. But it was, it's such a time in high school for young men and women to be able to play like that and and the ferocity with which they shut this stuff down. Yeah, it, you, know, and I, you know, and I went on to become a high school teacher, that's how powerfully good. And I know a lot of people look back on high school and, you know, don't see it as one of the better times of their life. I was lucky. You know, what can I say? I'm younger than them, but Grace Slick went to my high school. Joan Baez went to my high school. There was this rock and roll psychedelic thing going on at the same time as the anti-war movement. 
you know, um, Black Panthers were around. Uh, it was everything, everything was happening. But I decided to become a high school teacher because at those age, I'm so glad you're talking about it, Todd, because, because in those teen years, anywhere, you know, 13 to 19, you are young enough to still be to, you're, you're old enough to know that there is a world out there, but you're young enough to have not yet been made cynical by it. So you're willing to act on your idealism. And I see that today in all the commitment of young folks who are out there fighting for, for great stuff. And I, I want them to have fun doing it too. Um, but um, that's the beauty of that age. And I think you, you captured it as well. And It's such a beautiful age. And I, I get inspired by more people under 25 <laughs> than people over yeah. 25. I really do. You know, it just, it so resonates. And I, I think it's a challenge to everybody out there to, to not forget your younger self. Right. You know, it's still there. It's still accessible. You can talk to it, commune with it, be that person anytime. When you forget about it, when you start to look at high school students and say, oh, those kids, that's a wake-up call to stop and get back in touch with yourself a little bit. You know, that younger self. There's so, there, and it's it'll bring a sparkle. It'll make your, your age lines reduce. It'll grow some more hair back on your head. You know, it will. It'll what do, made Robin Williams so funny? Pounds. What made Jonathan Winter so funny? What made Andy Kaufman oh. so funny? They stayed in touch with their child, and so did Alfred Jarry, by the way. Where do you think Kaufman would have ended up if his arc had ended prematurely? <sighs> yeah. He stayed clear of the explicitly political, yet his challenge to convention, his refusal to be a comedian in the conventions that were established for comedians has political ramifications, but I, it's hard to know. And boy, have you ever seen the book? Uh, it's called Andy Kaufman, I Hate Your Guts, I think it's called. And his, his uh, you know, it's a, it's a whole mm -hmm. book of all the hate mail he got. Um, tricksters can be quite pr provocative, as you said. You know? <laughs> I want to think about that. What else, what, what, what he might have he gone on to do. And, you know, since we're bringing up Andy Kaufman, and this is in the book, and all you folks under 25 who are listening, I want you to check out Disruptive Play, please, because you're the audience I so much want to connect with. But, um, you know, Andy Kaufman had, did some wonderful things, and he finally gets to Carnegie Hall, and he does his show, and at the end of the show, he has rented a bunch of buses, and they pull up in front of Carnegie Hall, and he takes everybody in the audience out for milk and cookies. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. And if you haven't seen, if you don't know Kaufman, you can watch, it's an imperfect movie, but I, I still loved it. Uh, Man on the Moon starring Jim Carrey. Uh, and I've seen it a few times. And each time that milk and cookies scene yeah. gets me a little teary for some reason. It does. It's, it's just, it's such a perfect thing. Man on the Moon, there's actually also a behind the scenes movie about Jim Carrey making Man on the Moon and how he sort of became Andy stuck in that character for a long time. Uh, that's a documentary I haven't seen yet, but I look forward to it. Maybe you'll come back and we'll do a whole podcast, seriously, well, just on Lenny Bruce and Andy Kaufman. You, if I, if, I think if that'd I, be pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. These are two characters that... Yeah. Yeah, well, well, the book Go ahead. I'm writing now, there's a very extensive chapter on Lord Buckley. And Lord Buckley was, did not become as famous as Lenny Bruce, but it's kind of like Lenny Bruce was the shadow side of Lord Buckley. Lord Buckley was 
as trickster as a human, as close to the demigod as a human being can get. He got in a lot of trouble. He had a lot of fun. He took nothing seriously. And he eventually, you know, he died in 1960. But he was, he was already the first hipster and the first hippie and, and, um, and just an amazing guy, born in 1906, okay? So he predicted a lot of these things. And if you listen to Lord Buckley comedy routines, he was a million other things besides a comedian. But, if he, but he did make records, and if you listen to them, you will hear... Ask any successful comedian if they were influenced by Lord Buckley. He's like this best-kept secret. You will hear Robin Williams. You will hear the cadences of Robin Williams. You will hear Gilda Radner. You will hear Chris Rock um, in the way Lord Buckley delivers his comedy, which never had a punchline, but always had a good story. Um, So he and Lenny Bruce did a stint together, naturally at a strip club, in Los Angeles, and they they were on the shows together. And Lenny Bruce was just kind of a little bit more cynical, a little more the dark side. And even though Lord Buckley got in trouble all the time, I think he was actually a more playful character. But they're really interesting to look at the two of them together. So, so Buckley's always pulling pranks. So Lenny Bruce decides he's going to get back at Lord Buckley. And before Buckley goes on stage, he hides in the rafters above the stage. <laughs> and it wasn't well built and it collapsed. So Lenny Bruce just falls through the ceiling, uh-huh. you know, sheetrock and wood splintering everywhere. And Bruce lands on the stage right in front of Buckley. So they were, they were good friends. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So let's jump away for a minute to kids and play, which is kind of where we started this. But I just want to talk. I want to, let's see, how can we, oh, I know, a pet peeve of mine. Pet peeve of mine, a pet peeve of a lot of parents out there. I know it's true. Just own it. Play dates, right? Play dates. You want to have your eight-year-old play with another eight-year-old. You have to set up a play date and you put these you automatically bring it, I think, in a way, away from uh, original play and into cultural play because you're putting a time frame on it. I'm going to be there to pick up Jimmy at six and eight. You know, we used to just go and knock on the neighbor's door. Hey, can, you know, Jenny play? And it was this unstructured afternoon where you run around the neighborhood and you come back at sunset. I know that sounds like good old days, but I'm not that old. It wasn't that long ago, right? What happened? What happened societally to make us diminish the original play? No, I don't or am think I overstating? you are at all. I can't remember the name of the woman who got fairly well known uh, in New York City, right? Yeah. In New and York? Letting kids play. And I've, I've heard her speak before, and I, I agree with the idea. And yes, my childhood was like that. Just get out of the house and we'll see you for dinner, you know? And. Um, Free, yeah, yeah. Free range kids. kids. That's her. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah. we're very achievement oriented. An achievement, uh, you know, credited, licensed achievement, like a college degree or a license to practice law or medicine, comes from engaging seriously and in a disciplined way in cultural play, which is fine if it's not overdone. But it's overdone all the time. And, uh, and we lose balance, and with the kids, for they grow up as adults who, I won't say they don't know how to play, but they've forgotten. I, I, but I want to I address that with something positive, which is 
a very early inspiration for me was a gentleman named Fred Donaldson. He wrote a book, a very good book called Playing by Heart. And he's this guy who introduced me to this idea of original play. But the way he introduced it to me was he came to Seattle. He did a workshop, but I'll call it a play shop. And we got out and put out wrestling mats on the floor, created a safe space. And he showed people how you get a, get on the floor and you, and you get with someone else and you kind of start wrestling and you start, it starts turning into a game, but before it gets to the point of rules and points, it dissolves and then it comes back again and it has this rhythm and we all have it within us. And I'll never forget one time um, playing with my, my nephew when he was six, seven probably not much older than maybe maybe eight maybe as old as eight and we just went for a walk and we were in a park and you can start doing this with a kid where you just start rolling around and playing and they 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 go right into it they get it and they don't hurt and they don't hit and they don't pinch and so forth and you just roll around and you laugh so it's there it's there for us and we just don't do yeah. it I think that's what you said about the kids rolling around. We often, and I'm guilty of it as a parent, but I've also seen it at at different schools. We often break that up really quickly. As soon as we see kids rolling around wrestling, we break it up because of the fear of somebody bumping a knee or hitting their head or, or, you know, getting a bloody lip from somebody else's skull. Waldorf education, for its, they are very ardent supporters of free play. They don't break kids up if they get in a fight at all. They let them settle their differences. They don't jump in, right? Matter of fact, if I recall correctly, they don't even allow sports. They do athletics, but sports, anything with hard rules until around, if you're a Waldorf person out there, correct me, whatever, around age 10, I think. I think they believe that once you demarcate things, once you put lines on a field, you restrict imagination, you inculcate a restricted form of play thinking. You know, you make these kids require uh, an arbiter, a judge, a referee, which kind of disempowers them from creating their own, from from having to argue and to figure out arguments and figure out yeah. their own systems. And I kind of love that, which isn't anti-sport. It's just right, right, right. wait a little bit. Like wait until they're, you know, old enough uh, to, to have figured out their own rules. So, so made up here, their own. Here's, a, here's a point I'd like to make. And, you know, I, ha- I have a background in music as well. And so, and as an educator. So I remember all the years when I worked in the schools of my colleagues in arts education, feeling they had to justify their music program or their painting, their art program saying, you know, if kids uh, study music, they'll do better in math. You know, that was the one that came up all the time. Or if they do this, they'll do better than that. And it was the same thing with play. And a lot of the play scholars and the play articles go, well, you know, if you let kids play, they'll be better at this and better at that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to say to them, mm-hmm. well, what if, it, what if studying music didn't make you better in math? Would you throw it out? Why are you pinning your justification on this? And I say... You need to say, we need to teach music and we need to let kids play because they are intrinsically beautiful. They are intrinsically human. They're intrinsically wonderful. And I don't care if it raises their GPA, you know, 
I don't care if it gets them into a good college. I want them to do it because it's fun and it's human and it's, it's valuable. Doing things just for fun. That sounds, that's going to be part. Let's see. The super nice club is, is aiming to make the world 10% nicer. I think that if everybody focused on doing just one thing for fun each day, that's going to be 3%. That's going to be three percent. We got to make that bad for a day's work. Okay, I'm writing that down. No, not at all. What are we going to take? Thirty minutes. Okay, so folks, thirty minutes a day of play, and I don't think that includes video games, does it? Because video games are kind of rule based and structure based. They're fun ish, but they're not. They're not. They don't meet the definition of not to me. But there is an author. I can't recall her name at the moment, and I I would love it if you had her on for a podcast. And she's written two, three, maybe four books about how gamers are are going to make the world a better place. So she has her own theories, and it doesn't quite fit my theories of playfulness. But I'm but I like what she's about. That reminds me of the nice work episode fourteen guest Prince Ardafio. Prince is, uh, lives in Accra, Ghana, and he is a, a gamer. He's a gamer, a programmer. He's a game designer. And we cover in that episode his efforts to literally clean up Accra through this GPS-enabled game where, you know, in the game you go in and, and you have goals, tasks to do some cleaning and, and getting these things out of the uh, – out of the waste stream. He's young. He's incredibly motivated. He speaks at game conventions around the world. So you're totally right about this idea that we can gamify uh, positive works and, and social engineering through gaming is, is something that I hope That's really takes off. And funny, of all the places I visited in Africa, it was Accra. Yeah. And if you're talking about the open oh, sewage, really? yeah. and that, that okay. he, that's what he would, that, that they, that that was part of the cleanup that he was trying to do. I don't know, but I remember that distinctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is hope. And again, it's these young, really young people taking on what would a lot of people, I think that are just um, conditioned to, mm. to be profit or goal oriented in that way. These are audacious goals. I'm going to clean up my city and my country and the world through a game. And a lot of people would say, that's going to be, who's going to want to pick up trash? How are you going to, how are you going to add a 299, you know, add on in that game? And he's not even thinking that's about fantastic. it. That's fantastic. And he's having success doing it. So Prince, if you're out there, shout out to you right now. You said that you're a musician and you still play and you're a big Bert How, Bacher, Oh, I did a, I did do a blog post on Bert. Yes. <laughs> You did. You saw him crush that is it at absolutely age ninety. Correct. Am I it right? Was, it was delightful. I just think he's one of the greatest songwriters ever, and um, he has this great band. And he's a little bit frail. I think he's done performing, but he's still still ticking. And um, yeah, love Bert Bacharach. Um, I mean, if you look at the, if you just look at the box set of all the hits that he's written, I don't. I don't think anyone else comes as close to the Beatles in terms of songwriting success in, in a particular era. This is something I, I'm not a musician, but you were, you were saying something about how he had some time signatures that were sort of atypical that he introduced that to is the correct. He, music he was, world, am I right? Ravel, who was the classical composer, romantic composer, impressionist composer, actually, that he was most excited by. And I think that influenced it. Yes. You read my mind. Odd time signatures. And you know what? 
Dionne Warwick was the perfect vehicle for it. She was really good at mastering these 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 strange time signatures. Yeah. Yeah, Burt Bachrock. I, I'm going to have to go back and dive into his catalog because I just always sort of categorized him in the kind of boring okay. Frank Sinatra stuff that I just never got into. But I'm going to let's. We're all going to get into the Burt Bachrock, okay? The Super Nice Club. How many times have you seen Great <laughs> Dead perform? I'd say over 40, <laughs> less than 50. Not that many compared okay, to a lot so not of others, that many but, compared. <laughs> but you get on these websites and, you know, I am going to be giving away my age, I guess. And people talk about, well, when was your first, you know, mine was 1968. Mm. Okay. So I get it. <laughs> okay. So you were two years old. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. My, my dad, I Grateful Dead concert. to a show at one point, which was really fun. Yeah. They were just the local band, you know, Palo Alto. So do you have any musicians, contemporary musicians to to you, this is just, you know, subjective, who embody this play yeah, spirit besides, that the yeah, dead I mean, did I mean the dead were just, you know, it was, it, it was uh, just an amazing experience being around them in the community of people that listened to them. And yeah, the altered consciousness that took place. And I will say, you know, you asked earlier what got me into this play stuff. And the fact that if, if you get into what I'm writing, it leads to kind of a utopian perspective. That's what I think politics needs to be about, is you know, building a better world. And the, the, the space created around the Grateful Dead and in the Bay Area gave you an opportunity to imagine that and to imagine that it could, could be real. Now, when you get to just the idea of the playfulness of the child in music, two people come to mind immediately. One is the composer Eric Satie. Who, uh, whose, whose, whose compositions to me, uh, which are not as simple as they sound, um, uh, reflect the child, the consciousness. And the other is Thelonious Monk, um, who is so much like a child in the way he, he, uh, the way he plays. And, and yet both of these guys were geniuses, you know, and so many people consider Monk the greatest jazz genius, yet he's, he's in there doing what a, what a, what a child would do. And that's, that's not a coincidence, you know? There is something profound about your, your child state. You know what I found interesting when I've attended, this is our shove into Burning Man territory. What I found interesting about attending Burning Man, which I've only done three times, I guess it's like the, it's like the dead, right? <laughs> if you haven't done it a bunch of times, you're not a real burner. That's okay. I don't, I don't need to be a real burner. I'm impressed. I'm there as a times. cultural anthropologist, really. But- at, at Burning Man, there right. isn't a lot of live music. That was one of my biggest surprises. Right. It's, it's all electronic dance music. It's all uh, more trance, you know, less... So what I There's read not a lot of extemporaneous that, um, music there. When the EDM folks first started showing up, there was some resistance to them, but that eventually they managed to find a way to weave themselves into the fabric. And... Um, I'm always trying to keep up with music, and I, 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 all I can say is um, I didn't get EDM for a long time, and then I saw Odessa, and uh, and it was it was mind altering. Ah. And it, I mean, funny you mentioned the Dead because they grabbed the room and the way they used their light show on the all four walls of the where they were playing. Um, and the way they played um, mm -hmm. was one of the highest I've felt at a through music <laughs> since uh, hearing some 
uh, being at, at some Grateful Dead concerts. I was really impressed. The two EDM bands that opened for them were awful. But um, but thank God for Odessa. They were just, mm-hmm. they're really talented guys. Yeah, I don't really know EDM that well. Odessa, I know. Clase is someone that I've uh, that I appreciate. She's a uh, God. Is she American? French? I don't. Remember. Yes. Anyway, yes. so Burning Man, Burning Man, Burning Man, Burning Man. Would you say that's a pretty great example of a possible play society, or is that an unrealistic uh, example because it's so it's it, um, so I, finite? I, to short answer, I think it's a very exciting example. Two ways I want to get into this. The first is that when I talked in the very beginning about disruptive play, I talked about how disruptive play is 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 it's like a prank, but it's a prank that can upset people who are involved in cultural play when you call the game, when you say mm. when you do something that disrupts people who are competing and deep into their cultural play reality. So I started thinking, well, if you take this trickster persona, and you take this playfulness that in a cultural play arena is disruptive. But what if you remove the cultural play? What if you create something like Burning Man, which has as few rules as possible, um, and, and let people be playful, and let them be playful through the plastic arts, you know, through sculpture and so forth, as well as through their dress and their behavior, um, I just think it's a fantastic, or at least historically, I can't speak to current day, but the fact that it happened, mm-hmm. and my, my getting into this a little bit backwards, but my chapter on Burning Man starts with a discussion of the Grateful Dead, and how when the Grateful Dead were the most popular live act in the 80s, they, did, they, weren't, they didn't see it as their responsibility to take care of the, the vagabonds the vagabond deadheads that were following them city to city, whether they had a ticket or not, whether they had any money or not, and they're creating uh, disruption of the communities where the dead are playing and problems for the police and so forth. And and there's the, the part of me that says, well, no fair, because when there's an NFL game, you know, we bring all the police are more than happy to use my tax money to make sure everything goes fine and all that. So when there's a dead show, why can't they do the same thing? But the point is, you would have these magical Grateful Dead concerts that inspired you to think, God, and this is why people followed them city to city. They'd go, the deadheads would go, I don't want this to ever end. This is how I want to live. I will eat tinfoil wrapped burritos for the rest of my life and, and, um, and, and take whatever is being sold and, and love whoever is around me. But it, but it wasn't that. It was a rock show, and it had a beginning, and it had an end. And it, it, much as the deadheads tried, it, it, except for some folks, very hard to create a lifestyle. And I really believe Burning Man is a lot of other things as well. But one of the things it is is it answers the question, well, what if you took that feeling of people really getting along and being playful and not being bound by written rules, but more by intuitive love for each other and tried to make it last, instead of three hours, make it last, I don't know how many days, five days. And that's, that's what intrigued mm-hmm. me. I want to read a little thing that you wrote about Burning Man here. Just to, I think it gets it across so well to those who haven't been. First of all, 
as is said by so many people, if you haven't been, there's no way to know it. It is an indescribable event. It, it's all the things you hear, and then it's it, it's one of those things where the sum of the parts is so much greater than the whole. It is an electronic dance music festival. It is kind of a, a you know a flower child thing. It is funky naked people wandering around. Above all, it is some of the best art you'll see anywhere. And then it's so much more than all of that. But uh, Dr. Siegel in his book writes, you know, on, on Burning Man as an example of play society. Uh, can Burning Man become the play society? How would a society that is based on play get things done? Would the play society be possible when we need roads and doctors and construction and smartphones and grocery stores and all the things that require a disciplined order and process? Burning Man energetically answers this calling every year for a week when it becomes one of the largest cities in Nevada, which is crazy, where the necessities of a city, it's 100,000 people out there, folks. It's getting close to that. Uh, where the necessities of a city to function are met, but met sparingly. Yes, it's libertarian, but it's also utopian, interdependent, and joyful. And it is successfully, and it successfully lets art and play rule without neglecting human necessity, without making war, without class exploitation. It's not about play eliminating order. It's about letting play and art flourish and thus optimizing order by minimizing it. So take it away from there in terms of where you see Burning Man. Is it scalable? Is it replicable? And I know they have Burning Man in in other countries or, you know, versions of it, right? They have these, what do they call it? Um, Right. Burning Man, the actual organization has international burns. What do you think about it in terms, is it something that is dependent on the moment in the zeitgeist? Or do you think it can transcend that and move forward and continue to adapt to, you know, culture as it adapts? I I tend to think of these events as kind of markers in the sand. Um, We go back to Abby Hoffman. I mean, the fact that that prank with the Pentagon happened is something that you can look back on and you can learn from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that the Grateful Dead played for 30 years and had these magical moments happen over and over and over again all over the country, all over the world, is um, was a wonderful time and a historic marker. And I think Burning Man is the same thing. Uh, I, and I so so the thing is the form changed from a rock and roll show to a five day, 24 hour a day festival. That's a grand experiment in utopian living. Let's just call it that. Um, Don't you think the form's just going to have to change again, but we're going to take what we learn from Burning Man and it's going to inform that next form. And speaking of the fact that there are little branches everywhere and that it's turned into a a helping organization, uh, is it not true that when Hurricane Katrina hit, it was right during Burning Man, and a whole bunch of people just dropped what they were doing at Burning Man, and they went to New Orleans to volunteer and help. That's a wonderful parable of what inspiration can do. That organization is Burners Without Borders, and they still exist, and they go out, and they, they, they help those in need. There we Worth go. Worth checking out, Burners Without Borders. So Burning Man is now in, you know, it, it could possibly 
just sort of dissipate because of COVID, right? They're having a funding crisis, although I can't imagine that with all the tech right. billionaires in the right. Bay that they won't find somebody who will write them a check. But if it does, part of me is excited about that because all of that creative energy, right. what's it going to do next, right? Maybe it has to be extinguished exactly. yeah, to see what the evolution of it will be. Um, I wanted to offer a closing thought. Yeah. So here's the thing, and it may or may not fit with um, – what's just come before, but I did think about leaving a challenge for your listeners. I don't propose tricksters as role models necessarily. I propose them as something to learn from. And what I did before COVID is I said hello to five to eight strangers every day. You know, just walk around my neighborhood and say hello. Uh, unless they're wearing earbuds, then I don't bother them. So that one's been covered. So I need a new one for you, your folks. And it's this, the trickster cycle moves from moral indeterminacy to moral discovery. In other words, it discovers morality not by studying a book or adopting a doctrine, but through experience. And I want to encourage your listeners, when faced with any kind of a moral dilemma or when deciding their moral position, to try to come to their position not not by adopting a doctrine, but by ex going through an experience that brings them to moral discovery. Because I think morality is the kind of thing that, for lack of a better term, has to be rebooted again and again and again in order for us to really stay in touch with it. And that's my challenge. Uh, here's wow, how, you how do I it. summarize that challenge? Beware the Puritans. <laughs> Rediscover your morality. <laughs> Beware the folks who only rely on doctrine to decide what's right and what's wrong, but don't rely on the actual human experiences they've had it. I think that's a great challenge. And not only with morality, but with anything, just that which you take for granted because it's something that you learned a long time ago. When's the last time you, you asked yourself, uh, when you probe a little bit deeper about why you do things or, or why you feel a certain way. Hey, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Siegel. Really, really appreciate it. Look forward to, to what's next. We'll have you back on yes. to talk about your next book. This was fun, man. All right. <laughs> thank you. So there you have it. A super nice conversation with super nice Dr. Shepard Siegel. Check him out. ShepardSiegel.com. Uh, it's in the show notes, the link if you're driving or whatever. Uh, play, right? Have you ever thought that much about play? About the role of the trickster or how important they are? If you have, good for you. And I hope this added to your knowledge. If you haven't, dive in. Take a look around as you go through your day. See who's playing. See what it looks like. See what it feels like. Remember what it feels like. Go play. I think that's the whole thing. Whatever you're doing, just, just go play today. And then tomorrow and the next day and you'll get younger every single time you do. I promise you. I promise you. All right. Hey, don't forget to join the Super Nice Club Insiders. Text us 310-421-0393. Text anything. I'll reply. It's going to go right to me. And then you're going to be a part of the Insiders group, which is awesome. You get breakfast three days a week at Dr. Siegel's house. Um, I'll do uh, 20 minutes massage a year. It's, uh, I don't know. It's just a cool thing to join, okay? It's for people who want to play and aren't dead inside. If that's you, text us. Cool. Love you. 
Talk to you next week. We have a crazy show next week that gets into veterans, homeless, developers who are trying to to get rid of these homeless veterans uh, because they're fighting over the most valuable parcel of land in the United States where they're doing testing on the homeless, giving them meth and brain banks and Project MK Ultra. It all happens in this parcel of land just a mile from Super Nice Club headquarters, and the story is pretty crazy. So listen in. And remember, I love you. Stay nice. Oh, wanna be nice. Don't you wanna be one of the people in the Super Nice Club? Oh, wanna be nice. Don't you wanna be So what? Big deal.